0: Well, Welcome, good morning. We are here today continuing to study this book, this letter of First Thessalonians, and we've been in it for a handful of weeks. We're still in chapter 4 this week, and there are five chapters in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And this is one of the earliest letters that we believe that Paul wrote, and so it's really shaping a lot of that early Christian influence for the church, of how they're acting, of how they are to go about living lives as Christians in the culture. And Paul knows that the culture that they're up against in Thessalonica is not a religious culture in terms of Christianity, but it's a religious culture in terms of just a massive amount of different gods that people are seeking after to follow. And there's the Jewish influence as well, and overarching that Roman influence that is really impacting the lives of the Thessalonians. And so Paul's writing this letter to respond to the report he's received from Timothy, to encourage them in what he's heard that is positive about how they're living as the church and as Christians, and to give them a little bit of advice as well as to what that can look like moving forward. So we're going to continue today to expand in chapter 4 and see what this has for us as followers of Christ as well. Before we do, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word and for the Apostle Paul's faithfulness to write what you instructed him to write. For Lord, we know that as we open this and read it, we aren't just reading a man's words, but we are reading the very words of you, our God. The Holy Spirit inspired these words, and so we treasure them as the living words of you, Lord. And so as we spend time today looking at these words, may they change our lives. May they lead us closer to you, and may they cause our lives to be lived in such a way that they reflect you more clearly to the world around us. And so, Lord, may you give us clarity and wisdom and insight as we spend time in your word today. We pray us all in your holy and matchless name. Amen. Well, one of the most famous, well-known bands of all times was the Beatles, and the Beatles had a famous song that called it was called "All You Need Is Love." You've probably heard it. If you haven't, maybe you've been living under a rock over the past years. But this is a well, well well-known song. And in this song, I was looking at the lyrics. And did you know that the word love is used 102 times in this one song? That is a lot of times that they use the word love. But it's not surprising when you read the lyrics or listen to the song, the chorus goes like this. I'm not going to sing it because that would not do us any good. But it says, all you need is love. All you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. And that's the gist of the song. And while love is important and shown here in the Beatles song, it's important in our individual lives and it's important in our cultural lives as we interact with one another. It's important in our communal lives of faith as well, that we would have love for one another. And love is important in Scripture which is where we find that basis for why we as followers of Christ love. It's not because of some catchy song from a popular band. It's not because of poetry that we love or a romantic movie that we watched. It's not even because of those feelings that we get inside of us when we are attracted to someone else. We love because Christ loved us, because the example that was set for us in Scripture and because of what we read in Scripture about what it means to love one another. Today, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he writes about the importance of love. The importance of love within and outside of the church. So let's take a look together at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, to explore how we are to practically love one another within the church and outside of these church walls as well. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We're going to be picking up in verse 9, and while you get there, just to remind us what's been going on, Paul has been instructing the Thessalonians and what it would look like to seek to walk and please God. And we talked about that last week, to focus on the will of God, and Paul calls them to abstain from sexual immorality as they do that. And now he's moving on from what it looks like to live out our faith as individuals, and he's talking about what it looks like to live out our faith corporately as we relate to one another. So starting in verse 9, this is what Paul writes. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So Paul moves the Thessalonians this idea of brotherly love. And he uses this word now, or some translators translate it as now as to, to uh, take us from the, where we've been in the text to where he's moving us towards. And it's also most likely that he's responding to some questions that Timothy has brought back from the Thessalonians, that there's been some things that have been asked of Paul that he's responding to. And so that's kind of what that now signifies. And we see him do a similar thing at the beginning of chapter 5, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks here as well. So Paul, most likely responding to a question that's come back to him from Timothy it says, now concerning brotherly love. And this word for brotherly love, you've probably heard talked about before, it's that Greek word ph- Philadelphia, and it's that idea of a love of Christian brethren. Normally, though, the idea of a brotherly love in this culture would have referred to the love of a family member amongst family. It would have not been used to describe the love between members of different families, but really would have been within your own family unit, how you loved one another, But in the New Testament, what we see is we see this idea of Philadelphia start to describe the love that believers have for one another. So expanding outside of that familial unit into that family of the church, how they are to love one another. That even though they're from different families, even though they perhaps are from different uh, socioeconomic standings, that they will love one another in this way and that they're united in Christ as they love each other. And so Paul is talking about how they are to treat each other in the Christian church. But he says that they don't really need further instructions here. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Paul knows that he's already probably spoken with them about what it means to love each other. He knows that he's taught them what it looks like to be a loving community, to be those who love each other with Christ's love. And so he says they don't need any further instruction. He also knows that they will have known the words of Jesus who taught about what it looked like to love each other. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And yet, even though Paul knows this, he still writes to them. He still includes this because it's important for us all to be reminded from time to time of these facts. You and I also all probably know that we should love one another, that we should be caring towards one another. And yet, it's a good reminder for us to return to these verses and to remind ourselves of the importance of love here. And Paul says that they were taught by God later. He says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You see, I believe that there's two aspects to what Paul is saying here as he says they've been taught by God. I think the one aspect is God's words that Paul has spoken as God has inspired Paul and spoken through Paul after his conversion on the road to Damascus, that God's words have been spoken and preached to the Thessalonians about what it means to love one another. But I also think that what Paul's talking about here is that they should innately know what their father expects of them to. As they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, as they have the Holy Spirit living within them, that they would know from God what it means to love one another. Paul knows that they've been taught to love one another. But the interesting thing here is that in the beginning of this verse, Paul uses the word philadelphia, phileo, which is that Greek word for love, when he's talking about brotherly love. But here at the end of this verse, as he talks about God, uh, taught by God to love one another, he changes the word that he uses for love. And he uses the word agape for love here. And agape has the idea of that unconditional love that you've probably heard talked about, a sacrificial love, that love that God himself showed when he loved us as sinful men and women. In 1 John 4, 7, we see this idea of agape love reference. As John states, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And this is an important element of the Christian faith, not only because it's the receiving of God's love, that unconditional love for us as sinners, but because it's important that as we receive that love, that we in turn start expressing that love to others. All of those who have experienced the love of God should be loving others out of that experience. And so Paul is starting off this section by letting the Thessalonians know that they are to love each other in this way, that because they've been loved unconditionally by God, that it's out of that overflow that they are to love their brothers and sisters within the church in the same manner. Paul's reminding them that of this fact that it's because of the love they receive from God. And Paul lets them know that this uh, change isn't because they aren't doing it, but rather it's a reminder to continue in these works. Look with me at verse 10 to see how Paul continues. He says in verse 10, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You see, Paul said it wasn't that they needed to be taught to love one another. It's not that they're not doing it. But Paul is just reminding them again. He's letting them know that he has heard that they are practicing these aspects of love. For indeed, that's what they are doing. As Timothy has come back to Paul, as he's reported what's been heard around the region, what he's seen in Thessalonica, it's that they are loving each other. That they are continuing to love not only their brothers and sisters in the church, but that that love is having a ripple effect outside of the church, even outside of Thessalonica, into Macedonia. So, Paul isn't writing to correct a problem in this instance, but perhaps to answer a question or to continue to encourage them to continue forward in this behavior, in this love for one another. And Paul uses this word, all, praising the Thessalonians that their love is not just kept within their own community, but that their love is to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. All were recipients of this love which is another indication right here in the text of the power of the gospel message, that it breaks down these barriers, that it goes beyond just those who are family, and that God's love as it moves through us, as we experience that agape love, and as we in turn try to love our brothers and sisters, that it expands beyond barriers. It breaks down those socioeconomic barriers. And that's what the Thessalonians were doing as they practiced this love for their brothers and sisters. But Paul wants to continue to encourage them, to exhort them. So he says that we urge you here. And his language shows that he's continually urging them to love each other and those around them. The Greek word here for urge conveys the idea of coming alongside them. Think about what it looks like when you go with your child or your grandchild to the ice rink. Or to the roller skating rink when they had one here in town. And you rent skates and your kid can't really skate that well. And you go alongside them. You're there to support them. If they start falling, they pull you down. Hopefully you can keep them up. But you're there to try to encourage them, to support them, to keep them steady. And that's the idea here that Paul has as he says, we urge you. It's the idea of coming alongside the Thessalonians. Paul's seeking to encourage them in their positive behavior that's becoming known around the region. The importance of encouraging other believers is evident in Paul's writings. It's evident that that weighs on Paul's heart because we see it in his letters, not just this one to the Thessalonians, but all of his letters. There's an element where Paul wants to encourage believers in their pursuit of Jesus. It makes me think, how do we as Christians do in this endeavor? How do we do at encouraging those believers around us in our pursuits? Do we walk side by side and help lift each other up and support one another when we're struggling? Do we urge one another on in our pursuit of Christ? How can we give an encouraging word, perhaps, to someone here, even within our congregation, who you know is struggling? Maybe it's a phone call in the middle of the week. To just check in and see how someone's doing and encourage them. Maybe it's a card to someone who you know hasn't been here for a little while to just say, hey, I missed you, and I hope that you're doing okay, and I'm praying for you. Or maybe it's taking someone out to lunch or a cup of coffee and just checking in with them and encouraging them in their journey and in their walk pursuing Christ. Well, Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians and encourage them to be loving one another. And he says he wants to encourage them to do this more and more. Paul wants that God's agape love will continue to grow more and more in the lives of the Thessalonians. And you may wonder, well, how can they do this more and more? What does that look like How can the Thessalonians abound in God's love more and more? Well, it's only by God's amazing grace that this can happen in their lives. And it's only by God's amazing grace that it can continue to happen in our lives as well, that we would abound more and more in his love. And Paul shows us the idea of this elsewhere, of God's grace abounding in the lives of believers. In 1 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see, God is able. God is able to make the brothers abound more and more as they pursue Christ. In this verse in 1 Corinthians, God is able is put in the present tense, which means that it's a continually fully capable and powerful enough. That it's this ongoing action that God is able And to make grace abound, it's to continually abound. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just that God would give us the strength or the power that we would be able to love one time or show God's grace to others just one time, but it's a continually ongoing thing that because of the capable power of Christ at work within us, that that grace can abound within our lives. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul knows that as the Thessalonians follow God and thus live in his grace, that they can continually love each other and others outside the church more and more as that grace abounds in their lives. What's great to love others like Paul has, but he also has some specifics in mind as to what this looks like, what this practically looks like for the Thessalonians. Look with me at verse 11 to see how Paul moves them from this concept of love to the practicality of it lived out in their lives. So Paul said he wants it to abound more and more, and he says in verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So here in verse 11, Paul gives these three exhortations as to how they may express love for one another. And we know that this is linked with what Paul was previously saying because of this word end. The Greek word there is a linking word tying what's coming in verse 11 with what Paul was just talking about in verses 9 and 10. And so Paul gives these three exhortations, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. And this idea of aspire that Paul speaks of, it's it's make it your ambition to be found in honor of doing the following. And we know that from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians that some of what Paul's writing here stems from issues that are happening within the church, ways in which they perhaps weren't following these exhortations. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, Paul writes, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, And earn their own living. So we know that these have been issues in the church in Thessalonica. There's a reason why Paul is exhorting them in this manner to live out these three ways that they can show and practice love. So let's unpack them a little bit more. The first one, aspire to live quietly. The notion that's present here is that we would be still or be silent. Live quietly basically means to be at rest. And was used of silence after speech or rest after labor or peace after war. And it was also used for the tranquility of peace of mind. Here it's used to urge the living of a calm and restful life. It makes me think about the series we did over the summer, Downtime, where we talked about solitude and simplicity and Sabbath and the importance of those in our lives of pursuing after Christ. That in order to be able to minister and use the gifts that we've been given by God, we need to have elements of solitude and rest and simplicity in our lives. That we would rest in who God is and then we can minister out of the work he's done in our lives. It's important that we have these rhythms of rest and these times where we're not going, 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 but we're able to just be in the presence of God. This idea of living quietly can also carry with it the idea of being respectable people who do not cause problems in the community. And this would impact the ability of a Christian to be able to influence their community around them. If they're not doing this, if they're not living in a respectable manner, if they're causing problems in the community, then that would impact their witness. John MacArthur in his commentary suggests that in anticipation of the Lord's return, believers are to lead peaceful lives free of conflict and hostility toward others, which is a witness to the transforming power of the gospel. You see, these two go together. It's hard to live a peaceful life and, it's, and then be respectable in the community if you don't have any peace and rest in your own life. If you aren't practicing these elements of living quietly, then it's hard to have that presence in the community So Paul's encouraging them that this would be an element of how they practice love, that they would aspire to live quietly. The second thing he says is, mind your own affairs. This word, mind, means to be occupied with, to accomplish, or to practice. And the present tense here calls them to make this a daily practice or a lifestyle, to take care of their own business. Minding your own affairs would mean that you're not prying into others' business. I would put this under the category as well of gossiping and meddling, that these are not a good witness to others. These don't build up the body of Christ, but they tear it down. They bring about division, and they bring about um, just a lot of junk that's not needed in the church when people are being busybodies and gossiping and meddling. And so Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians to mind your own affairs, to be concerned with what God has called you to do and where you are to focus your ministry and efforts on rather than to meddle in other people's business as well. And then lastly, Paul exhorts them to work with your hands. And you may be wondering, why is Paul bringing up work at this point? Why does the text tell specifically that we are to work with our hands? Well, most commentators agree that while the text doesn't say specifically what's occurring, that some believe that the, a hope and the knowledge that Christ would come again was impacting believers' time spent working. That it had led some believers to feel like they didn't really need to work, like they didn't really need to spend their efforts working and to cease to even work because they want to just think about and dwell about Christ's coming again and prepare for that. And while it's important for us to prepare that Christ will come again and to ready our minds for that and be aware that there is a hope To Christ's coming again, and that that is a reality, is also important to work. It's also important that we would contribute, and that we wouldn't just cease to do everything that the Lord has called us to do, and live off of others' charity. And even in the broader society, the idea of work and manual labor it wasn't regarded in an honorable way. The Greek writer and philosopher Plutarch said, "While we delight in the work, we despise the workmen." As for instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes, we take delight in them, but dyers and perfumers we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. You see, work wasn't looked upon with respect. And so Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians of the importance to continue in their work, to remain obedient to the commands to work that we see throughout Scripture because it's a proper witness to non-believers as well. And Paul has tried to model this for them. Back in First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, Paul is calling the Thessalonians to not be idle, but to pursue working and contributing to the society around them. Because Paul knows that this will impact their ability to witness to those who are present around them as they continue to practice loving one another while working with their hands at what God has called them to do. Paul has provided a lot of instructions in these three exhortations as to how our love for one another is to be expressed, but he anchors it in our witness towards others in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. So that... Paul starts verse 12 with, which introduces the purpose of these exhortations. So Paul's giving us these three ways in which love can practically be expressed by the Thessalonians. And then he anchors it, he says, So that he wants us to know that these exhortations have a purpose, that they're not just for no reason, but that the purpose is so that you will walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, Paul knows that there's a witness that Christians can have in their community. There's a witness that you and I can have in our community as believers. And this word walk, it's not uh, meant to be a metaphor. The word actually means when you're out walking about, when you're physically walking around town. Paul knows that as they walk around, as people see the Thessalonians who are a part of the church, that he wants them to be living in such a way that they have a credible testimony, that the things that they say about Christ are not undercut by how they're living their lives, but that it is supported by how they're living their lives. That how they live and love and work, that it gives credibility to the testimony of Jesus Christ that they are proclaiming. You see, by loving one another, by living quiet lives, by minding our own affairs, and by working with our hands, the Thessalonians are in turn able to present a meaningful witness to outsiders. In addition to what people can see, Paul also encourages the Thessalonians to not be dependent upon others. And the ESV study by points out that for some Christians to be shamelessly exploiting the wealth, uh, the charity of wealthier Christians would have been disgraceful in a first century Greco-Roman environment. You see, Paul doesn't want them to be exploiting charity of others. Paul doesn't want them to be stuck in obligations with a patron-client relationship or unwarranted debts with unbelieving family members. That's not how Paul wants them to live their lives. Now, that being said, the church should help care for those who need help. When there's those in our midst who uh, don't have the ability to provide for themselves or don't have family to care for them or cannot work due to age or disability or special circumstances, the church can come alongside them and love them and support them. But Paul is calling those who are able to work and to not be dependent upon others. And Paul's concern this morning with how the church is to love one another and how that is to be lived out in their lives is clear. And it's anchored in that idea of how we are to witness to those around us. The witness that will come from the love that we have for each other in the community will be great if we follow after Christ, if we follow after Paul's words. So how can we take Paul's words this morning, his exhortations and his encouragement towards love and apply them to our lives here in Springfield? Well, first and foremost is the obvious one that we would love others well. That as followers of Christ that we would practice taking that agape love we receive from Christ and in turn loving those here in our church, loving those outside of this building as well as Christ has loved us. With the self-sacrificial love, that has the greatest impact. I was reading a story about self-sacrificial love this week. In the magazine, the Christian leader, Don Ratzlaff, retells a story from Ernest Gordon's Miracle on the River Kwai, which is a story based on World War II events. It says, "...the Scottish soldiers forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad had degren- degren- excuse me, degenerated to barbarous behavior." But one afternoon, something happened. It says a shovel was missing, and the Japanese officer who was in charge became enraged. He demanded that the shovel be produced, or else he would shoot all of them. He got his gun and threatened to kill all of the captors if no one would would come forward and say that they had taken the shovel. It was obvious that the officer meant what he said, so finally one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun and picked up a shovel and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the lives of others. And this incident had a profound effect. The men began to treat each other like brothers. When the victorious allies swept in, the survivors, like human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors. Instead of attacking their captors, they protected them and insisted, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. You see, the way that we love each other in the church, the way that we love each other outside the church has a profound impact upon those who witness it. If we love each other poorly, people will notice. They will say that Christians are hypocrites, that we don't practice what we preach. They'll point to Jesus and say that we don't love like he loved. And they won't really believe in the power of Christ's transformative love that we profess. But if we love each other well, if we're willing to sacrifice and and love in the way that God has loved each one of us, then lives will be changed. People will want to know how we love with such depth People will be pointed to Jesus as the source of our love, and they will experience his love and his forgiveness. So may we seek to love each other well, not just when it's easy or comfortable, but always practice showing the love of God that he has shown to each one of us. Paul doesn't stop, though, with love as being the only application that we see. In a similar vein to the Thessalonians, our expression of love should impact how we work, how we labor and toil, I was reading a story from Jeanette Cliff George who talks about speaking at a church in Oklahoma. She says, about six years ago I was speaking at a luncheon held in the Civic Auditorium of a city in Oklahoma and I settled myself at the place at the head of the table. I picked up my fork and I noticed that two rose-petaled radishes adorned my salad plate. Someone had taken the time to pretty up two radishes just for me. Then I noticed that each table, each plate had these neatly curled radishes. I turned a lacing to my right and said, I'm impressed by the radishes. You're impressed by what, she asked? By the radishes, I said. Look, each salad plate at our table has curled radishes. Yes, she said, exercising a questioning smile. They're pretty. Well, they're more than pretty, I said. Someone took the time to specially care to do these. Don't all of them have them, she asked, gazing at our table. I looked and was was astonished. Each salad plate was adorned by two curled radishes. That took a lot of time. I'm not on the planning committee, the lady said, but Gertrude is, and my tailmate uh, instructed me to where Gertrude was seated. She said, Miss George wants to ask you something about the radishes, she whispered. Gertrude mouthed, the radishes? Is there something wrong with your radishes? No, they're fine. I just thought it was nice to have them all curled. Oh, Marietta does those, all of them? I knew the head count in the room, and I was astonished. There was almost 800 radishes. Yes, but Marietta wants to do that. Would you like to meet her? She's in the kitchen. So Gertrude and I went to the kitchen, and there I met Marietta, the lady of the radishes. Gertrude tells me that you curled all these radishes. They're lovely. Each salad looks so festive. Well, I don't mind doing it. It just takes time, Marietta replied. I don't know what more to say, so I left. Later I spoke, and there was an encouraging response. Afterward, the ladies scurried past me with murmured greetings and a few stopped to speak of God in their lives. When we fished, it was so heavily raining, we hurried across the parking lot to the car. Through the rain, I could see a lady carrying a large polka dot umbrella that had collapsed on one side, waiting by our car. It was Marietta. She was smiling as though we had found her on a sunny day in an especially delightful garden. I had to see you, she said. I heard your speech and it was good. She said, I have to go home now. I slipped inside the car. Marietta crouched down close to the window and called to me. Just remember this. You keep telling people about Jesus, and I'll keep curling the radishes. (laughs) The rain and my tears splattered the picture of her face as we started to back out of the driveway. Ah, dear Marietta, I haven't forgotten. We are to do our job in the love of him who does all things well. You see, when we are willing to work hard, when we're willing to do our best, even when perhaps it seems insignificant to others, people will notice. It will have an impact. Especially, I believe, in our culture today where work is becoming more and more of a lost art. If we are willing to be diligent, to work hard at the task that the Lord has placed before us, at the callings that he has upon our lives, I believe that people will notice. I believe that it will have an impact. So work hard, not just for your sake, not just to make more money, but to honor God with the gifts and the skills and the time that he has given us here to serve him. And lastly, may you have a vision for your life that goes beyond yourself. May you recognize that God wants to use you to impact the lives of others. And because of this, may you seek to be a witness to the world. Did you know that they discovered graffiti on the Washington Monument from the 1800s? Although this graffiti was quite different than the graffiti that we would see around town, And as they found it, they found that someone had taken the care on the Washington Monument to write this. Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. It it, it was signed by BFB and no one knows who that is or who left that small drawing and 19th century dates on other walls. The markings in the lobby of the monument were covered over when it was decorated at the turn of the century, but they were found when workers removed the marble wainscoting as part of a year-long half-million-dollar renovation that was completed in in the 1990s. The idea that when we are a part of being able to help lead someone to Christ, that when we are a part of being able to help someone on that path of conversion, what a beautiful thing it is when God uses us to help convert people to Christ as their Lord and Savior. You see, the Lord desires to use each one of us as his followers to be instruments to witness to others his love and to share with others that we all are sinners in need of God's grace. You see, there's only one way to be saved from our sin, and that is through the forgiveness of our sins from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that is why we must be a part of witnessing to this, of pointing people to Christ, of bearing witness to those all around us that Jesus alone is, is who our hope is found in. The Apostle Paul gave his life to these teachings. He preached and taught this message until he died. They weren't just words written from the safety of his room, but these were things that he practiced, that he lived out, that he modeled to the believers and to the world around him, and ultimately that he died for. Paul lived what he preached, and we must too. So may we today As we go out from here, consider the cost of following Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And may we place everything in submission to him as we seek to love others in his name for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the love that you have shown us, for the way that you modeled to us what it looks like to truly love. Lord, we are so unworthy of the love that you've shown us. And yet you continue each and every day to love us. So Lord, may we do our best to reflect that love to those around us. May we strive to live in such a way that people would get a glimpse of the love that you have shown us. Lord, that it would impact lives, family members, our very city, and the culture here in Springfield and Eugene as your love spreads out from your church. So Lord, empower us in this. Lord, guide us in this. And Lord, may it be for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.